They've served a purpose for millennia, but our behavioral biases tend to make us lousy investors. It's Money 30, and I'm Don McDonald. Once again, I suggest you listen to the previous episodes in this four-part series of podcasts. Our behavioral biases tend to make us lousy investors, so to overcome them, we need to first recognize them. So alphabetically, here are some more of the more common behavioral biases that impact our investments from G through M, and we'll start with one of the most dangerous emotions, greed. Like fear, greed requires no formal introduction. In investing, this term usually refers to our tendency to, or greedily, chase hot stocks, sectors, or markets, hoping to score larger-than-life returns. In doing so, we ignore the oversized risks typically involved as well. In Oliver Stone's Oscar-winning movie Wall Street, Gordon Gecko, a character based on the notorious real-life trader Ivan Boesky, makes a valid point, up to a point. Quote, greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed in all of its forms. Greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge has marked the upward surge of mankind, unquote. In other words, there are times when a little greed, or call it ambition, can inspire greater achievements. However, in our cutthroat securities markets where you're up against the Boskies of the world, greed and fear become a two-sided coin that you flip at your own peril. Heads or tails, both are accompanied by chemical responses to stimuli we are unaware of and have little or no control over. Overindulging in any extreme leads to unnecessary trading at inopportune times. Up next, the herd mentality. Move over, cows. You've got nothing on us. We instinctively recoil or rush headlong into excitement when we see others doing the same thing. Quote, the idea that people conform to the behavior of others is among the most accepted principles of psychology, unquote, say authors Gary Belsky and Thomas Gilovich in the book, Why Smart People Make Big Money Mistakes. If you've ever gone to a hot new restaurant, followed a fashion trend, or binged on a hit series, you've been influenced by herd mentality. According to Belsky and Gilovich, quote, most such conformity is a good thing, and it's one of the reasons that societies are able to function, unquote. It helps us create order out of chaos in traffic, legal, or government systems. Yet whenever a piece of the market is on a hot run or a cold purge, herd mentality intensifies either our greedy or fearful reaction to a random event that generated the excitement to begin with. Once the dust settles, those who reacted to the near-term noise are usually the ones who end up overpaying either for the privilege of chasing or fleeing temporary trends instead of staying the course toward their long-term goals. As Warren Buffett famously said, quote, investors should remember that excitement and expenses are their enemies, and if they insist on trying to time their participation in equities, they should try to be fearful when others are greedy, and greedy only when others are fearful. Up next, hindsight bias. 
This is the I knew it all along effect that causes us to believe that our memory is correct when it's not. For example, you expected a particular political candidate to lose, but she ended up winning. When asked afterward how strongly you predicted the actual outcome, you're likely to recall giving it higher odds than you actually did. Similar to blind spot bias, a bias we covered in the previous episode, hindsight bias helps us assume a more comforting, upbeat outlook on life. As the authors of Why Smart People Make Big Money Mistakes, Belsky and Gilovich describe it, quote, we humans have developed sneaky habits to look back at ourselves in pride, unquote. Sometimes this causes no harm and may even help us move past prior setbacks. But hindsight bias is hazardous to investors since your best financial decisions come from realistic assessments of market risk and reward. If a high-risk investment happens to outperform but you conveniently forget how truly risky it was, you might load up on too much of it and not be so lucky going forward. On the flip side, you may too quickly abandon an unperforming holding, deceiving yourself by dismissing it as a bad bet to begin with. That brings us to loss aversion, which is a fancy way of saying we often fear losing more than we crave winning, which leads to some interesting results when balancing risks and rewards. For example, in the book Stumbling on Happiness, Daniel Gilbert states, quote, most of us would refuse a bet that gives us an 85% chance of doubling our life savings and a 15% chance of losing it, unquote. Even though the odds favor a big win, imagining that slight chance that you might go broke leads most people to decide it's not worth the risk. Now, there are times when loss aversion plays in your favor. Consider the home and auto insurance you buy every year. It is unlikely your house will burn to the ground, your car will be stolen, or an act of negligence will cost you your life savings in court. But loss aversion reminds us that unlikely doesn't mean impossible. It still makes good sense to protect against worst-case scenarios when we know the recovery from them would be very painful. Yet loss aversion can play against you if you decide to sit in cash or bonds during bear markets, or even when all is well but a correction feels like it's on its way. The evidence demonstrates that you are expected to end up with higher long-term returns by at least staying put, if not bulking up on stocks when they are perceived to be cheap. And yet the potential for future loss can frighten us into abandoning our carefully planned course toward the likelihood of long-term returns. Now let's talk about mental accounting. If you've ever treated one dollar differently from another when assessing its worth, that's mental accounting at play. For example, if you assume inherited money must be more responsibly managed than money you won in a lottery, you're engaged in mental accounting. In an early paper called Mental Accounting Matters, Professor Richard Thaler, who is credited with having coined the term, describes how people use mental accounting, quote, to keep track of where money is going and to keep spending under control, unquote. For example, say you set aside $250 a month for a fun family outing. 
This does not actually obligate you to spend the money as planned or to stick to a budget. But by effectively assigning this function to that money, you've better positioned yourself to enjoy that leisure time without overdoing it. While mental accounting can foster good saving and spending habits, it can play against you if you instead let it undermine your rational investing. Let's say, for example, you're emotionally attached to a stock you inherited from a close relative. You may be unwilling to unload it, even if reason dictates that you should. You've just mentally accounted your relative's bequest into a place that detracts from rather than contributes to your best financial interests. In our next episode, we'll conclude our alphabetical emotional journey, and I'll share some thoughts on keeping your behavioral biases in check. For more on money and real investing, visit money30.com. And again, please subscribe, tell a friend, or even leave a review. Thanks for listening. I'm Don McDonald. <music>